Hello, this is Melissa Hale Spencer, the editor of the Altamont Enterprise, and I'm very excited to have here with me today Tim Albright, whom I consider a local treasure. I had first known Tim because I would see him out on a tractor (laughs) at Indian Ladder Farms, this figure in a distance who seemed to almost always be there. And then soon after, I saw a Santa Claus at Indian Ladder that just seemed an awful lot like Tim. And then the more I got to know him, the more I found out whenever we need something in our paper that's got like an historic past and we want a picture of like an old postcard, we call on Tim. So welcome. Welcome. (laughs) Well, thank you very much, Melissa. I enjoy uh, the Altamont Enterprise very much. Uh, I don't know what we would do without the local newspaper supplying us with uh, information about our local communities uh, here in the valley and up in the hill towns. Um, The uh, other newspaper entities don't seem to cover our local businesses and uh, what's happening in the community as well as you do. Well, thanks. That was an unsolicited start. I appreciate it. I'd like to just start by talking about your life from the very beginning, because I don't know a lot about it. I'm guessing you're from New Scotland. Is that right? Well, I was born in Albany, and I lived there until I was three with my family, and we moved here in 1964. I was born in 1961. And uh, yes, I I am a New Scotlander, and uh, we can trace our heritage all the way back into the 1700s here in New Scotland as the Albright family. Oh my gosh, I didn't know that. Well, tell us about growing up in New Scotland. What was the town like then? Well, the, the, the town uh, itself uh, was uh, a bit different than it is now. It wasn't quite as developed, and there were a lot more small businesses that I remember uh, in, the, in the town, mostly in the small villages. New Salem and Voorheesville were the places that I was most familiar with, having grown up near Picard's Grove, or Picard's Grove, I think, as it's properly pronounced. And um, I was kind of outside the village, but uh, we visited the village often, and there were small stores, little kind of mom-and-pop stores along uh, South Main Street uh, that don't exist anymore, and um, the same in in New Salem. So things have changed that way. Uh, We gravitated more toward Albany for business and not Schenectady because my folks were from Albany. But um, I enjoyed growing up in New Scotland, and uh, I attended the Voorheesville school system, uh, which I found to be very um, likable, and uh, I have pleasant memories of that school system, and um, I liked it that it was a small school system. And I just have a sense, and maybe this isn't true, did you spend a lot of times in the woods and fields as a kid? I just... I did. Having grown up on Martin Road Extension, uh, that's the dead-end part of the road that uh, now is home to the Albany County Cooperative Extension. Um, we were on a dead-end road, so we didn't see a lot of traffic. Of course, we all gravitated toward the uh, four corners near the ten houses uh, at the intersection of Picard Road and uh, Martin Road. But uh, when Mom and Dad... Uh, allowed us to take time to play away from working on the property, which my father was really big on, uh, we gravitated toward the Helderberg Escarpment. And the Helderberg Escarpment for us held many places to explore and many wonders of nature. And uh, so we pretty much explored every nook and cranny that we could between New Salem and Altamont. 
Yeah, that's the kind of childhood a lot of kids don't have anymore because everything is so kind of organized. And there's even, there are places when I've read these bizarre stories in the paper where parents get arrested for letting their kids kind of out to play on their own. And it's just kind of a, a change in, in growing up. What what was it like for you to kind of grow well, up? television wasn't something that was really prevalent in our lives. In the evening, we watched television. But during the day, um, after doing chores and working with dad or the the local farmers, uh, he often hired us out for free to the local farmers, which was we re- we we didn't like that at the time. But as an adult now, I can see how much that inspired me in my adult life uh, with farming, and that's what I've made a career of. But um, we uh, played as a group at the Four Corners. There were lots of kids in the ten houses, so it was a, a big neighborhood full of kids. And I don't see that amount of kids there at all anymore. I don't know where they are, if they're hiding indoors or they're at the mall. But uh, we spent our time uh, up on the mountain exploring, and we were in some very dangerous situations, and our parents didn't know that we were. Uh, we were often on the edge of a cliff or down in a crevice, down in a cave, and uh, we, were, we were told the only thing we had to do was be home for dinner. <laughs> and we were made fun of very often by our friends because my father had a bell out in front of the house. And he would ring that bell, and when he rang that bell, you better come running. Otherwise, you were going to get punished. You better get there very quickly. My mother had a whistle. It was her father's from World War One, and she would blow that whistle in three blasts, and we had better get home for dinner, too. But we were on, we were on the hunger kill. We were over, like, in the Gilderland side, but yeah. So... Maybe this isn't just a myth and not true, but I wanted to ask about when you developed uh, an interest in history. And I've heard that you as a kid developed the seal that is still the seal for the town of New Scotland. Is that true? Yes, that's correct. Um, That's what began my interest in history. I had a, a, a music teacher. Her name was Ruth Bombach, and she had a studio up on Crow Ridge Road. What music did you study? Piano. Oh, wow. So I took classical piano for four years, uh, in my, uh, in my elementary years, and I enjoyed it very much. But I found that I had a uh, better feel for mechanics than I did music. I wasn't very musically talented, and I regret that to this day because I still try to play music, but I'm not very good at it. So anyway, uh, Mrs. Bombach was involved as a founding member of the New Scotland Historical Association, and um, I loved her very much. She was a wonderful lady, and she taught me piano as best uh, she could get it through to me. And uh, she and the Historical Association um, were set up a contest because the town of New Scotland didn't have a town seal. They set up a contest and put it out there for anybody who wanted to participate to draw a town seal, and they would evaluate and choose one for a $50 savings bond. So th- at that time, I started investigating the history of New Scotland, and that's really where it, it began. And, of course, through so high school— So tell us about the seal. Describe it to uh, well, us. Well, the seal um, includes a depiction of a Dutch windmill— because and, uh, your history investigation showed that yes, the Dutch were the uh, the original settlers here beyond the Native Americans, the, the original European settlers. Of course, Henry Hudson came up the river in 1609, and from there on, the um, Van Rensselaer family uh, were charged with colonizing uh, the New Netherlands, which we now know as this area. So anyway, I got an interest in it. So I included settlers and Indians, uh, uh, thistles from New Scotland, 
grains of wheat. Um, the year the town was uh, founded away from uh, the town of Bethlehem in 1832. And um, a few other items, the Führer Bush, the Indian Ladder, or the so-called depiction of an Indian Ladder at the time. And I sub- made my submission, and they chose it. So I was 13 years old at that time. So you were an artist. Well, I enjoyed art. I enjoyed art class very much. So um, I got after it, and uh, fortunately I won, much to my surprise. <laughs> and uh, I had a $50 savings bond, and at the time, Supervisor Wallace uh, presented me with the bond uh, along with Mrs. Bombach at my side. And um, uh, that's my claim to fame in the town of New Scotland. Yeah, well, it's a great <laughs> seal, and it's still in use. So yes, it is. Tell me, though, about the love of history that came from that and how you've pursued it. Well, I'll tell you, um, my love of history really was centered around Thatcher Park and the stories and legends of the Indian Ladder. And we had been told about these, but we'd never been taught much about them. And we really didn't receive a lot of information about our immediate local history in school that I was aware of. Maybe we were given it and I wasn't paying attention at the time. But uh, what happened was... Uh, with all our explorations of Thatcher Park and the stories about the Indian Ladder Road, and we used to hike up that road, and um, the stories about the Indian Ladder, I'd never seen any actual depictions of it till I was at the Carmen Road Dutch Mill Flea Market, I think it was, in 1984. And I came across a vendor who had an old postcard album, and in that postcard album was a postcard from 1910 of the Indian Ladder at Thatcher Park. Now, I wasn't even aware of the whole postcard industry and its importance at a time when telephones were not popular. They were the means of communication for people when telephones were not really available to everybody. So for a penny, you could send a note to somebody and they would actually get it quite quickly. So here was this postcard of a ladder set against the cliffs at Thatcher Park. And I was, oh my God, here's a picture of the Indian ladder I've heard so much of before, but I've never seen it. So I started to pursue more postcards. I started to um, find out how prevalent postcards were in social life uh, in the small towns and that every small town had multiple postcards of what was happening there. And, of course, Thatcher Park was a, um, a tourist destination. And so postcards were prevalent there, too. In fact, uh, Thatcher Park, earlier known before 1914, as it was designated in 1914, Thatcher Park, was known as the Indian Ladder Park. And some of the earliest tourism there was in 1855. And that's as far back as I can find tourist uh, items, but all through the latter 19th century and right through um, most of the 20th century, uh, people were going there and enjoying the wonders of what we now call Thatcher Park. So... That got me going on local history. I started to collect photographs, not only postcards, but any photographs I could find of any of the small towns surrounding Thatcher Park. So that's all the way from Altamont to Clarksville, from Voorheesville to any part of Burn, West Burn, East Burn, the lakes, Warner's Lake, Thompson's Lake, and all the outlying areas. So this was a time when tourism was quite different than today. Just tell us a little about the kinds of 
tourists who came. Yes, well, so um, back in the 1800s, uh, people were leaving the cities mostly during summer because cities at, during the summer were not pleasant places to be. They often were hot and they had uh, bad smells revolving around them because of, um, you know, sanitation issues and uh, there was and also no disease and no air conditioning. So most people had a place to go in the summer. And because transportation wasn't it, what it is now, uh, automobiles uh, weren't prevalent or even existent, uh, of course in the late 19th century and even into the 20th century um, in the early part uh, they weren't available to many so they went for short distances so people who lived in Albany went to the Heldebergs and the climate was cooler and um, they had a summer vacation up there so and the postcards themselves are different than we think of today where they're kind of like hundreds of thousands mass-produced there were a lot of Sort of yes, it's, it's interesting. Uh, the postcard industry uh, started in the late 19th century, and uh, it turned out that most of the postcards, uh, the images that were taken here by photograph, were actually shipped over to Germany for production, and they took black and white photographs and colorized them. The earliest postcards were all black and white, and that's uh, pre-1907, and they usually left a space on the front for writing your message, and the back was dedicated to the address to the person it was being sent to. And then all of a sudden, they had a light go off in their head, and they said, we can actually uh, combine the address and the message on the back and fill the entire front of the card with a photograph. And so any cards like that were after 1907. And um, as I said, it was a popular way of communication, and it's interesting to see the messages that are written on these I was these just going to ask, do you save just the pictures, or do you look at the messages? and like what? Oh, yes, it's very important to read the back. <clears throat> sometimes, uh, or most times, it's very generalized, but sometimes... Sometimes the messages will give away portions of history uh, that are very interesting. So it isn't just like wish you were here. There are actually things that are intriguing in there. Yes, there are. There Do you are. have any favorites that come to mind? Anything? Um, I, I can't tell you any favorites that come to mind, but one that I quote all the time is uh, there's an image of two people sitting on the edge of the cliff at Thatcher Park. And this is from about 1912. And it's a colorized black and white photo. And they did a hand coloring process uh, to colorize black and white photos. And then they were able to replicate that on a machine, some kind of lithographic machine. I can't recall the exact name of it. And um, on the back, it said, this is a wonderful place to spoon. And at the time, I had no idea what spooning was. And so I asked some old timers, and they uh, referred to it being the same as what we used to call necking. Yeah. Well, I went to a college that had a lake, and they had what they called spoon holders around the lake. And they looked like the old-fashioned spoon holders. But, of course, people would sit there and spoon. That's very funny. I love that. So <clears throat> you had mentioned earlier that at the time your father had you working on the farm as a kid, but in, you didn't really appreciate it, but in retrospect, you did. So tell us how it is you became a farmer and your long-term, I think, 40-year relationship with Indian Ladder Farm. That's right. Um, uh, just recently, I celebrated the uh, 40 years uh, that I've been at Indian Ladder Farms. I started in July 20th of 1979. Being right out of high school, um, I graduated in June of 79. But to your question, um, my dad didn't own a farm per se. We weren't farming anything um, when I was a kid, but uh, he was very interested in taking care of his property. So we weren't growing any crops, but we took good care of the property. And when he was done with our help, we had a, uh, two local farmers, Mr. Beach and um, Stu Lehman, and they often were looking for help in the summer. 
And uh, so my dad would tell Mr. Lehman, my boys are available, uh, take them. And so we spent summers hanging with Mr. Mr. Beach and Mr. Lehman, primarily Mr. Lehman. They worked together. Is that Chris Lehman's father? Yes, that was oh, Christine Lehman's wow. dad. Well, that's such a beautiful property yeah. right at the foot That's of the right. Well, they were our neighbors. Oh, and yeah. so, you know, uh, putting hay up in the heat of the summer and being up in a hay mow or out in the field wasn't something we enjoyed really, but um, uh, I grew to appreciate it and especially the memories of it. And it taught me how to drive tractors to uh, move four-wheel wagons which a lot of people can't handle backing up four-wheel wagons uh, it's actually mm-hmm. a difficult task if you're not accustomed to it but um so anyway uh, i had some experience you know they threw me on a tractor when i didn't even know what i, what I was doing uh you know pulling hay and uh, and conditioning hay and uh, all those kinds of things so uh in 1979 when i graduated i wasn't destined for college and i hadn't been to Bosey's. And I needed a job. I was interested in moving out of my parents' house and becoming independent. I didn't want to uh, be seen as feeding off my folks, and I wanted to get on my way uh, making my own living. So a friend of mine that I had cultivated um, earlier in 1978 was working at the farm. And uh, he said, you know what? The picking crew is not due here till September, and we have a summer crop of apples to take in. So we need to hire pickers anywhere we can get them. So like I said, at that time, a recession was on, so I was willing to take any work I could get. So I started there at minimum wage, and that was $2.90 an hour. Oh, my goodness. And that's what it was in 1979. So you can imagine, how you can figure it out for yourself how much you would make in a 40-hour week. So 40 hours of working hard and picking fruit. And picking fruit is a very difficult job. And we, uh, to this day, have had uh, trouble getting people to pick fruit. That's why we rely on um, guest workers from another country. So we'll get into that later. So I started as... um, an apple picker. And when fall came, uh, the Florida crew came up. Uh, There was a regular migrating crew from Florida that had traditionally been coming up for years to Indian Ladder Farm. But it was also the first year since World War II that Indian Ladder Farm decided to join in with the H-2A agricultural worker program with the federal government. So we saw uh, the first group of uh, Jamaicans coming into the farm. And at that time, everyone was considered migrant labor. Uh, In later years, they were considered offshore labor, and currently they're considered guest workers from other countries. So um, I was immersed into a world that I was not accustomed to of um, uh, American Floridians and uh, Jamaicans uh, as a work crew, and um, the whole scene that had been going on for you know, decades uh, across farms in America where migrants come to work seasonally on farms. And, uh, of course, they're strangers, you know, to me. And um, I started to learn um, a lot about America and the farm workers and how that whole thing worked. So I wasn't interested in continuing to pick uh, fruit. I picked pears and apples, and it was hard work. They had an opening for a tractor operator out in the field to work with the harvesting. So I took that job up the first year. As soon as the real crew showed up, I stopped picking, and I started operating a tractor because that was what I was best at. And uh, I continued to do that. Um, I moved on to the farm in 1981, and uh, I continued to do that, bringing in the harvest under the crew boss, Uh, until 1987 when I took over as crew boss. And so I continued as crew boss until um, uh, 1997. I took over as orchard manager. The last manager had left at the end of 1996, and I'm currently doing that job. 
It's just so astounding to talk to somebody that has had the same job and, you know, moving up to the management position, but just to know a farm that intimately for 40 years. Oh, yes. The perspective must just... Well, things have changed, you know, uh, because it's my 40th anniversary and the farm is having a little get-together for me uh, in early August. Um, I was going through the photographs of all the changes on the farm over the years. Highlight some of them for us. Well, for instance, when I started there, apples were being picked in single wooden bushel boxes. And we had, and they were just starting to use 20 bushel bins that could be moved by forks on the rear of a tractor on a three-point hitch. But we were still using thousands and thousands of single wooden boxes. So, of course, at the beginning of the day, those empty crates would have to be put out for the pickers to fill. And then at the end of the day, the full ones would have to be gathered up and put away. So it was a long day on the farm uh, to make sure that the – and the pickers picked by the piece at that time. And so in order for them to make any money, the, the empty boxes had to be available for them to fill. They couldn't be standing around waiting for you to bring them. And uh, so that you had to make sure they were in place all day long, that nobody was slowed up by the fact that you were too slow on the job. And then at the end of the day, when they quit, when it was 5 or 6 o'clock – you had to go around. We often worked until the moon was up in the sky, uh, bringing in the full crates. And then they had to be stacked and they had to be leveled off so that as you stacked them up, you weren't crushing the apples of the box underneath. So fortunately, um, the transition started to happen very quickly over the next four or five years to where we were using 20 bushel bins and the tractor did all the work with picking them up and that made life a lot easier. But also we were farming standard size apple trees, which were those big old large apple trees that you're accustomed to seeing since you were a kid. Uh, they were spaced you know, 20 by 30, 20 by 40 feet. And uh, the industry had to change the way it did things because in the days when we were working standard size trees, your expected production of apples per acre was probably maybe two to 500 bushels of apples per acre. And uh, you had to climb high in the tree to prune it. You had to spray high in the tree to keep it uh, under control from disease and insects. Um, it was actually uh, quite labor intensive. So as the years went by, we went from standard size trees to semi-dwarf trees to dwarf trees to now we're planting tall spindle trees. And if you drive by the orchard, you can see the difference uh, between the old trees of our youth and what we're doing now. We're spacing trees three feet apart in the row, and the rows are 12 feet apart for the tractor to drive down between them. And the apple trees are supported by a wire trellis system, post and wire system. Uh, without that post and wire system, the trees that are there couldn't support the weight of their burden. So the difference being that the old trees were very umbrella-like and they shaded a lot of apples. The new trees are very narrow and hedge-like and they get good light interception. So the apples that they produce are well-colored and they tend to be um, larger in size. You don't end up with a lot of small trees, small apples hidden inside the tree. So um, And they're easier to access. Easier to access. You're not spraying spray <clears throat> above 10, 12 feet. You don't have to climb trees to prune them. They're closer. They're, they're much easier to deal with. It's a much, uh, much greater investment to get the orchard started, but the returns are better on an orchard like that. But we're still experimenting with that. The whole industry is. It, they're producing more apples, um, but it's a more labor-intensive 
in the sense of the initial setup, and we don't know how long they'll last, these trees, uh, where the old trees would last, you know, 80 to 100 years if they're well-maintained. But, uh, so you mentioned just out of high school, taking this first job, having the Floridians come up and the Jamaicans, and it was a whole new world. And over the years, it's my understanding, and maybe this isn't true, that some of the same Jamaicans come back every single year. So have you developed like a knowledge of their culture and a relationship Oh, with yes. Them? I was actually able to visit uh, Jamaica <clears throat> twice in the 90s, oh. and uh, it was uh, very interesting for me. It was the first time I'd been to a so-called third world country. And when I visited there, I was amazed at um, the differences in the culture and the way people lived. And I said to myself, you know, it would be really good for American children to visit a country like this. Uh, I think they would better appreciate what they have here in the States. Tell us a little about it. Just Well, uh, when I arrived there, um, you know, there's, there was a – I don't know if it's true now. I mean, this is many years later. I'm not sure. But there was a great deal of uh, apparent poverty and I saw school children riding to school in dump trucks. And, um, you know, there was also wealth there, too. Uh, but I got off the beaten path. Because I knew the guys who came to work for me, I wasn't on the tourist trail. I, I spent three weeks uh, with my friends um, visiting uh, guys in their own neighborhoods. And uh, many of the guys who work for us uh, were doing very well. They're very... Um, uh, adept at saving their money and putting it to good use. So they weren't the guys who were, um, you know, poverty stricken, but you could see that in certain places. And of course, if you watch the news, uh, you can see it's, it's similar in other countries uh, that are like Jamaica. But uh, I found it very enlightening. And uh, I think that Americans uh, need to experience something like that to have a greater appreciation for where they live. And speaking of where you live, you mentioned you moved on the farm. And can you just describe to us the house that you live in? Well, there's there's two things. When when I first moved on to the farm, uh, I took an apartment at the back of the manager's house. And we lived there for nine years, and my son was born in uh, 1984. So we lived there from 1981 to 1990. And I was fortunate enough to be able to make an arrangement with the Tonight family to uh, buy one of the houses on the farm because I was interested in staying there and working there. But I needed a little bit of help um, getting into my own place. So uh, they granted me that uh, opportunity. And we bought the little schoolhouse on the corner of Meadowdale Road and one, Route 156. Yeah, it's just the most charming building. And the way you have it, just describe, you have like a park of antique tractors. Well, thank you. You know, I'm interested in the nostalgia of farming. And uh, as you said earlier, I'm interested in history and many facets of history. And one of them is uh, the history of farming. And I've uh, found some uh, gentlemen who were taking old tractors and equipment to the salvage yard down to the port. And so I offered them whatever money they thought they were going to get for salvage steel. I said, well, I'll give that to you and drop it off here because I just like the look of uh, the old farm equipment around the place. But we restored the schoolhouse and... um even the bell on top. Yes, the bell is there. Um, that's not the original bell, the one that sits in the tower now, but the original bell is on a post. The, the original bell was out on a post in front of the house, and it still is. And, um, of course, when we arrived at the house, the one-room atmosphere had been broken up into multiple rooms. The building actually stood originally over on Tiger Road. It, that's not its original location. It sat on stone pilings like many old barns did over on Tiger Road. And after the war... Um, uh, before the war, the house that originally stood on the corner where we are located now had burned down. 
And so they picked up the school from Tiger Road and moved it up to that location. But I investigated the history of the school. This The school I could follow as far back as 1827 when uh, the town of New Scotland uh, hadn't been founded yet, and it was still the town of Bethlehem. And so that schoolhouse served over on Tiger Road from 1827 to 1939. And the kids were then sent to uh, the Central School District. Uh, the current Voorheesville Elementary School was built in 27. So um, we have uh, the New Salem Schoolhouse. Kids uh, were still going to that one-room schoolhouse in the 1950s. So that was the last school, one-room schoolhouse in New Salem. But ours, ours operated until 1939. It was moved from Tiger Road in 1947, right after the war. Uh, the Tenike family had purchased it in 1944. And so uh, what happened was they adapted the foundation from the burned-out house to accommodate the schoolhouse, and then they made it into a rental, and they rented it from there on. And uh, we were fortunate to buy it and uh, restore some life into it. And uh, it still has the tin ceilings that were put in in 1913. I followed all the history. I went to the Voorheesville school system, the Bethlehem school system records, and uh, all any records I could find. So I found a lot of information. I was able to interview students who were still alive at that time uh, that had participated at that school. Uh, one of them, um, her mother was a teacher. Esther Crown Schultz, his mother, was a teacher there. So I got a lot of information. And uh, it was very interesting. Well, and the way you've restored it is just stunning. And with that stone wall and the flowers, well, it's thank you. Just beautiful. Thank you. Well, I have to mention that my wife is hard at work at that all the time while I'm at work. Yeah. And uh, I, there is something I wanted to mention about the farming when we were talking about the trees. Um, one of the things that I regret is that, of course, the industry, you know, the, the apple um, industry has to stay alive. So we move in that direction of putting those tall spindle trees in. Those are the small dwarf trees you see now. But what I regret is that we've lost the romantic feel of those old apple trees. When I used to climb and work those trees, um, I actually knew the trees individually. And you know the old story about picnicking and, you know, uh, making love under the apple tree mm-hmm. and climbing those apple trees. And you can't do that with the apple trees we're planting now. There's no individualism to the trees. They're uh, kind of nondescript, and um, I don't feel as close to them as I did those big old apple trees of the old day. Well, that's a good ending thought. We've gone over our time limit, but the idea that you individually knew the trees, I think, is just wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. Do you have any closing thoughts you'd like to leave with? I, all I have to say is that um, with whatever regrets we have for missing the past, um, look to the future, because the future, I think, holds many good things for us, and we'll always regret changes, but things don't stay the same. And uh, our memories that are uh, we hold from the past, uh, whatever we're doing now, will be the memories of the kids who are growing up now. Wonderful advice. Thank you, Tim Albright. You're welcome.